Welcome to Help from Future Self. Welcome, Archons. You're listening to yet another episode of Help from Future Self, a conversational Keyforge podcast hosted by and hopefully listened to by Keyforge friends around the world. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, but you can call me Alex, and I am joined as always by my compadres, my Keyforge chums, my Keyforge pals, the dudes that I spend a lot of time talking to about Keyforge. It's the Wheeling Keyforger, Rick. Hey, what's up? And Coach Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Blake? Uh, I think I'm on the wrong podcast. I thought this was the Marvel Champions podcast. Oh, dang. <laughs> That's yeah, going to be our um, side project. <laughs> How's everyone doing today? Real good. Um, special episode of Help from Future Self because we were looking at the calendar and realizing that two very important key fa- forge dates are coming up. Um, first, and very obviously, the release of Worlds Collide happening this very Friday, Friday, November 8th. Very, very exciting. We've been talking about it for months now on the podcast. And finally, it's going to be out in the wild. We're going to be able to play it in organized play. We're going to be able to play it in casual play. Everybody's going to have access to the same decks. Um, I'm just super excited about that. And I know you guys are too. But something else came up, which is that we are approaching on the 15th of this month, the one-year anniversary of the release of Keyforge. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I thought it would be really fun for us to sort of take this episode to kind of look back on the first year of Keyforge, because I know next week we're just going to be wanting to talk about Worlds Collide. Blake, I know you're going down to Seattle. You're going to be hanging out there uh, with uh, Dan from Sanctimonious, doing all kinds of Keyforge stuff on the fly. And of course, Rick and I are going to be participating in a bunch of different events here in Vancouver for the release. So uh, this seemed like an opportune time for us to sort of look back over the previous 12 months of Keyforge and sort of discuss some of the things that happened over the course of that time. So does that sound good to you guys? Sounds good. Yeah, sounds awesome. Right on. All right. Blake, you came into the game a little bit later, so my apologies to you because the first couple of topics I think are going to be things that uh, um, you maybe don't necessarily have the same uh, perspective on that Rick and I do. But I'm going to start things off real simple, and this is a question I'm going to ask both of you. Rick, I know you were in from the very beginning of Keyforge. How did you hear about the game? I actually was just across the street at my LGS, and... There happened to be posts up, and I asked the store owner what what it was about. He let me know, and I'm like, I'm in. All right. So that was Connections here in Vancouver? Yes, it was. Right on. That's the first place that I would have met you to uh, to play a game. We randomly hooked up after, uh, you know, I posted on the Keyforge Vancouver message board saying, hey, who's up for a game? And you were the person who was like, yeah, come on down. Yep. That's actually where we all first met was at Connections. Was it really? Oddly enough, it's called Connections, and that's where we connected. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what? I never connected those two things. And yet here we are. <laughs> Blake, where was the first place that you heard about Keyforge? I was listening to PTCG Radio, which is the Wasi's Pokemon trading card game podcast. And he would mention Keyforge from time to time. And the way he gushed when he talked about Keyforge during those episodes really intrigued me. And then I saw it at a couple game stores when I was there. And I finally just asked what it was about and then just pulled the trigger and it was honestly a huge it was like going to the top of a roller coaster and then you go over that edge and you start going down and it just starts going so fast and it's a thrill and that's what Keyforge was for me it was that drop in a roller coaster where it's just so much fun and excitement and that's how I heard about it I actually first heard about it from folks who uh, post on a Slack channel that I'm a part of in the games channel there. And somebody posted about Richard Garfield's new game. And the way that they sold it was like, it's like magic, but less expensive because you don't have to construct decks. Little did I know. Um, <laughs> little did my bank account know, <laughs> based on that description. 
But I remember my first impulse at the time was that sounds dumb because the whole appeal of playing a game like Magic or another collectible card game is customizing your deck. So how could it possibly be fun if you don't get to do that? And, uh, you know, I happened to be at my local game store at the time, just around the corner from where I live now. And uh, they happened to have it up there, and I had, you know, been hearing about it from the guys who were playing it that I knew, and I decided to buy a deck and give it a shot. And much like you guys, just I was all in right away. You know, I think I walked back that very same day to buy two more decks because I just instantly felt a connection with the game. I felt, uh, you know, that it was something that I wanted to be a part of, and I really wanted to get in with on the ground floor. And now here we are, 12 months later. Here's I have a question. Did you buy a starter set, or did you just buy a single deck? I just bought a single deck. You know what I think is the greatest marketing ploy of Keyforge is how they say you only need one deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the greatest marketing ploy ever. You're absolutely right. I don't know anybody who bought a single deck and stuck with it. No. No. The statement the statement is technically correct. It's just it never works out that way. Yeah. To give you an idea of how long it was before I saw a starter set, um, the very first organized play that I did when I went out to play at uh, 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 Magic Stronghold here, which would have been the first time meeting a lot of our Keyforge friends, I had tokens that I had literally printed off on my printer and cut out with a pair of scissors. I was using them for amber, stuns, plus ones, damages, the whole deal. It must have been such a pain to play against me with all these tiny little pieces of paper there. <laughs> and after that first experience, I was like, I don't care what I got to do. I got to find an actual starter set so I can get some tokens. Um. With that in mind, that actually rolls really well into one of the first things that I wanted to talk about. Um, obviously, we love Keyforge, but a real discussion of the year of Keyforge involves talking about both the ups and the downs. And I think one of the things that we used to talk about all the time with Keyforge, which thankfully has been totally rectified, is the fact that there used to be a major supply issue with Keyforge. Rick, do you remember the time when we just couldn't buy a deck? You literally, like, if you went looking for one, couldn't find one? Yeah. At at the beginning, I only went to my local my store across the street to to buy anything. But yeah, it it was a while to get stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the big things about it at the time was that it honestly felt like it was an impediment to people being able to get into the game because folks like you know, uh, I remember one of the first conversations I ever had with Jonathan was, you know, wh- how are you getting people into the game? And he was like, it's really hard because. You know, we have people at work who have decks and we play and other people who are at our office come by and see us playing and they want to join in. And I have to tell them that, like, you know, I can lend them a deck, but if they want to go out and buy in, there's literally no way for them to do it. And so there was this weird culture for the first couple of months where every time you heard about a store getting it, like people just descend on it like locusts and try and buy out their stock because once they it was gone, there was no like way of knowing the next time that they were going to have stock. Um, thankfully, I think the reason one that was always out of stock was that the game was so much more uh, popular and successful than uh, FFG was planning for it to be. And so they really had to ramp up production in order to meet that demand. And yep. two, I think that they also, I think, figured out the how to get it distributed properly to all the stores that were requesting it so that there was actually product in every place that needed and wanted the product. Blake, when you joined in on the game, do you remember there ever being any issue with you being able to find it at the time that you came on board? Not really, but I, I heard the legend of, of being able to go on the quest for the Holy Grail that was a Keyforge deck back uh, back in the 2018, I guess, <laughs> is when that was occurring. Long, I, long I heard ago. Stories. Yeah, and it was, it was crazy to hear about. And I mean, 
I, from what I understand from their projections is they hit a million decks registered when they were expecting at that point in time to be at 200,000 or something oh like that. Gosh. So that's how far advanced it was. So kind of interesting. So I think it was probably around the time that Rick and I started getting serious about hitting up as many OP events as we possibly could that we first met you, Blake, because uh, I remember first meeting you at one of the casual events at Magic Stronghold and then us going. No, up- it was at Connections. Or sorry, at Connections, rather. That was my very first event I ever attended. Was our casual night on uh, Mondays? Yep. Yeah, man, that was a good event. Um, I, I kind of missed that one. And I think it's fun that we're doing Thursdays there now, uh, these days on alternating weeks. One of the next times that we met was that we all went out because we wanted to be involved in a event at uh, a store that's way, way far away from all of us out in Surrey here in British Columbia. That, you know, that's like a considerable train ride for myself and Rick. And I know it's a, a considerable drive for you, Blake, uh, coming from where mm-hmm. you live. But the appetite for it was so big. And at that time, it was, you know, the beginnings of a Keyforge community. The thirst was real. That's that's the way to put it. Yeah. The thirst was real. Yeah. And because there wasn't necessarily consistent Archon uh, chain-bound events going on everywhere, there was a lot of us trying to figure out, all right, where are we going to go? What are those events going to look like? And how many people are going to be there? And now things are a lot more steady, I think, with that. And I can't speak to any other cities, but I really do feel like one of the challenges for us as players was figuring out what events are worth going to where we know the event's going to fire. Because I know both of you have had the same experience I've had where you show up hoping that there's going to be an event and then the event doesn't fire or it fires with like three people or four people. Yes, that has happened. Mm-hmm. And it's doesn't feel good. It's a, it's a deterrent for the game because it's, you know, like trick me once, shame on you, trick me twice, shame on me sort of thing. So you stop going and it's just... I know there was a time and we're not the only ones who have felt this way. It's It's been something that's existed within the community. Whereas that fear that people don't show up and the the effort that us as players have to put in, aside from the tournament organizers at the stores, just to make sure that the community is rallied for maximum attendance at any given time. Absolutely. Rick, I think that one of the things that uh, really helped me become a player of the game was the fact that whenever... I reached out to look for events to go to or to see who was doing stuff. You were always so quick to say, yeah, I'm available. Let's go do it. I'm interested in doing this. Let's hit it up together. And it really, you were my introduction to the Keyforge community. So I want to take a moment here just on help from future self to say thank you to you, Rick, because I don't think that if you and I hadn't become friends, I would necessarily be as invested in Keyforge as I am right now. So thank you so much to being for being a friendly face and sort of an introduction to this broader community. It really means a lot to me, pal. Well, you're very welcome. Actually, I started out as trying to be the leader go-getter for for a community and as soon as blake came around it seemed to shift to him which is perfectly fine by me the more the merrier in my opinion i think uh our strength is that with the three of us um we we try out always be like greeting people trying to get people involved and be friendly faces when people show up to events for the first time or the 10th time making sure that you know that feeling of community remains real so no matter what happens you know that people will know that there's a continuity there regardless of what venue they happen to be at. And that's really special. So thank you to both of you for joining me on that journey. Another topic that I wanted to talk about a little bit is the introduction of the vault tour and organized play. And that has affected all of us very differently. I think, um, Obviously, we've all participated in lots of local chain-bound events, and we all have decks that have lots of chains. We've seen the fortunes go up and down. Uh, Blake and I 
uh, have both been to some vault tours. Blake, you've been to multiple big time vault tour events. And I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, just how is that experience measured up to your experiences in other games? What did you find about Keyforge that made participating in those events feel special and different? Okay, so the way to kind of break it down is I've been to Pokemon like store level events. Like I guess it'd be the equivalent of like a store championship. It's called League Cup. And very similar feel in that sense. Um, in terms of the interactions with your opponents, very different though. Um, not trying to knock the Pokemon community, but there's, I'd say, a higher level of arrogance within that game with the players who think they're good at it, which is kind of unfortunate. And then with Magic, I had, I've only been to one GP, and then that is comparable to going to a Vault Tour. And it honestly like was not it was much more of an intimidating event than a vault tour is you don't feel as welcome the communication i feel is not as well placed i don't know if that was just the the instance in which i attended but there's just it feels so much more frantic and you're not comfortable because of not because of like the game but you're not comfortable with the environment that you're placed in so that was my experience and then going to like a grand championship and a vault tour it was way different it's like you feel more comfortable the community is more welcoming like in magic you do have good conversations with people but it's like once you're outside of it there's much more close-knit groups rather than people coming together who don't know each other and connecting that way so that was my big experience between uh, keyforge and magic and pokemon but aside from that i mean they're just high level events and there's obviously nerves and everything it's just i think we all feel this way is that there's just this feeling of inclusion and welcoming that exists within Keyforge. I don't know if that's because there's more of a mature audience than in some of the other games, but I just feel like that's something that's very present in the game of Keyforge. Definitely agree. I guess part of that, Blake, is the fact that a lot of people I talk to who are, become part of the Keyforge community are people who have spent time in other games and left for various reasons. Sometimes it's because mm-hmm. they didn't feel included. Sometimes because they felt like it was, you know, financially onerous for them to stay, you know, playing uh, a competitive Magic or competitive Pokemon. And sometimes just because they got sick of, you know, feeling taken for granted uh, by, you know, the community at large. And it seems like the Keyforge community has, uh, you know, really embraced a lot of those people. And it, I, I really feel like one of the things that we've seen so much of is that Keyforge players model the behavior that they want to see to other Keyforge players, and it tends to attract the people who are into that sort of a scene, and it tends to sort of push away those who are used to a more hostile or, you know, unpleasant uh, uh, gaming scene. And I think that's really cool. We're kind of building the world that we want to live in when it comes to Keyforge, and I think that's really special. I agree. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about another topic over the course of the last year. We had the Age of Ascension, the second set of Keyforge, which in my mind I actually include as kind of part of the first Age of Keyforge. The reason for that being that it was by all accounts designed at the time that Coda had not actually made it out fully into the wild yet. They were working on it and designing it after the game had been announced, but before it had actually been released. So when it actually came out, they didn't necessarily know how Coda was going to be. And I think what we've seen from that since the release of the Age of Ascension is that we've come to a common understanding of what Age of Ascension is and what Age of Ascension isn't. Um, Age of Ascension cannot compete with Coda. Is that a fair statement to make? Very fair. 100%. 
Yeah. So Age of Ascension is great against other Age of Ascension decks, and oftentimes I think in a sealed format is the best way to experience it. But we know for a fact that many of the things that uh, we hoped would be addressed by the Age of Ascension that we saw as problems in early versions of Keyforge, the CODIS set, simply weren't addressed by the set. They were working different ideas and different mechanics in, but ultimately the things that were a problem in the set simply weren't addressed by the AOA. Would you say that that's a fair statement? Yep. I would definitely say so, yeah. There was, there was things that people were hoping and expecting that did not get addressed, and there was, I guess on the flip side, other things that were addressed. So it's just kind of interesting, the back and forth. But the things that were addressed, I don't think were the core things that people were really interested in, mainly thinking about certain houses were less powerful, and they kind of addressed that and made them. And the big one, I think, was Brobnar. Like, Brobnar got a huge facelift from Coda to to AOA, which made it a lot more desirable for people. Mm Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. grump buggy and so forth, and the addition of uh, might makes right in other ways. Uh, of, and then of, the drummer gang or not. Oh, yeah. Combo thing. Wicked combo. Um, with that understanding, guys, do you have an AOA Keyforge deck that's staying in the rotation when the new set comes out? I might have a couple. There's still a lot of my AOA I haven't tried out. Right on. I have some decks that I, when I'm looking to play in a more fun setting where just with friends or people getting into the game, I definitely have some AOA decks that I think are really fun and have low Ember control, which are great when you're playing against someone who's just getting in and I have some fun aspects to it. And then my actual like best decks are AOA decks and they've stood the test of time. I've taken them to a vault tour and had success with them. I've taken them to stores and had success with them. And uh, I'm going to be taking one to a prime this upcoming weekend to see if I can have some success with it. So I definitely have some decks from AOA that are really top and do what I want them to do. They are definitely, I would consider, an outlier within the realm of AOA. Codename Secret Sauce is the name of the deck that uh, (laughs) we were discussing in our private chat today that Blake is going to be bringing out this weekend. Um, Speaking of card interactions and ones that had to be addressed. Do you guys remember when the errata dropped for lands and for bait and switch? Oh, yeah. Yep. Who could forget it? Man, it is weird to think about how bait and switch was considered to be the boogeyman of Keyforge for such a long time. Um, Before they put the errata in place that said you can only affect a maximum of two amber with it, it literally was a case of, uh, you know, people would say that if a Shadows deck didn't have bait and switch, it was useless. It was no good. And if it did I have honestly, it... I still think it was not not a good errata. It created the problem that existed within Coda. It actually perpetuated it much further because the bursting aspect of Coda was now like there was only one answer in a inter- or I guess two interdimensional graph and too much to protect that really addressed a heavy burst and bait and switch was something that caused that sort of, you know, play around sort of thing. So it didn't become too much. And I think it kind of worked backwards in the in hindsight now. Rick, do you remember the feeling of getting hit with a bait and switch when you had actually just put yourself in a position to forge your final key and losing the game on the basis of that one card? Mm-hmm. Did that feel good? No. Yeah, that's kind of the way I feel. I have a worse one, though. What's that? Not thinking and putting a Titan mechanic on the field when your opponent had five amber to win. (laughs) 
and that's still a risk that we all run to this very day. I was having a conversation yep. with a friend of the podcast, Jens, uh, when we were playing some casual games on Monday night. And uh, he mentioned a, a similar blunder that, uh, you know, he let an opponent take back that he would have won a game at a competitive event if he hadn't said anything. But he's such a nice guy that he let the person take the move back and then ended up losing the game. And I was just like, oh, oh I hate to hear that. But also at the same time, he's such a nice guy. You know, bless him for, for being a considerate uh, player. There's no way he wouldn't have done that. Exactly. Um, it is, uh, you know, one of those things that uh, I, I also find Keyforge players tend to be very forgiving of mistakes and misplays, um, mm-hmm. sometimes perhaps to their own detriment. And it's a thing that I certainly have been watching myself for where I'm like, you know, sometimes you just got to be the, the, the hard ass, even though your heart says I want to be, you know, friendly and let somebody take it back, especially if it's at a competitive tier event lands. I do not miss lands at all. Um, I totally 100% see your argument with bait and switch, Blake. I think that it acting as a deterrent for big bursts is actually was a thing of value that we no longer, uh, you know, have. But lands was just a thing that was so uninteractive and so unpleasant to deal with. We're talking about library access, Nepenthe seed, where people would use library access, use the Omni uh, artifact Nepenthe Seed to bring library access back to the hand, play it again, and then every time they played a card, they would get to draw two. And the end result of it was that you would have people playing these massive turns where they would cycle through their deck multiple times, um, and it was non-interactive, and it used up a huge amount of time, and it was a big problem at organized play because what we were seeing were uh, games with 35, 45-minute time frames, uh, half of them being taken up by people playing lands multiple times over the course of the game, and it was a big pain. Guys, do you remember that? Yep. Oh, yeah. It definitely was. It was when George Kegel did it in that one final of a Vault Tour and won it with it. It caused basically that that Vault Tour moment with his deck is what caused it to really be put in the spotlight and happen. So it's because of his deck, it got nerfed and errated, and then... Sure enough, lo and behold, months later, he goes and wins another Vulture with the same deck that has an errata on it. So it just showed that how good that deck was. But it also, I mean, it was one of those erratas that happened because it it made for not fun play. Mm-hmm. That was the reason why it happened. It wasn't because, like, as powerful as it was, that wasn't the problem. It was that it created a one-sided level of play where the you were no longer playing a game with two people and it just didn't feel good for for the parties involved like he even openly admitted he felt bad doing it because of what happened but i mean you're not going to not do it when it's going to lead to so much success for you that's a very good point blake and i think it's one of the things that people should always keep in mind with keyforge is that one trick pony decks can sometimes do very well and sometimes be very consistent, but oftentimes the absolute best decks are the ones that have multiple paths to victory. It can't just be about one single combo. It can't just be about one trick that it does exceptionally well, because if you take that to an elite tier event, you're going to run up against the deck that has the answer for it, and it's going to be lights out and game over for you. Yep. Agreed. Uh, Speaking of rules and errata and changes, the timing chart... Um, this was a big topic of conversation in the Keyforge community, especially online. Um, and I think one of the things that it really sparked it off was the ruling that was made around whether or not if a board wipe gets hit with Archimedes on your board, whether or not just Archimedes neighbors got uh, sent to the uh, uh, graveyard or whether all of your creatures got or sorry, got sent to your archive or whether all of your creatures got sent to your archive. Um that ruling never, ever, ever made sense to me, which was the the, the one that said that they all went to your archive. Um, but it took a timing chart 
to actually try and explain how destruction effects work. Um, gentlemen, if I was to say, hey, I need you to write down from memory how the timing chart works, do you think you'd be able to do it? Because I know I wouldn't be able to do it. Nope. Maybe 80%. Do you think that if you were in a competitive setting and – well, no, even one better. Have you ever been in a competitive setting where you had to pull out the chart to look at it to make sure that things were happening the right way? No. Actually, quite recently, yes, I did have to do that. Really? What was the situation? Do you remember? So the chiming chart question was it was regards to a before fight and fight effects because it was regarding whether it resolved in which order. And so it just created a situation where they were wondering if this would take effect because it was a post fight kind of effect. It's like after this happens, but it kind of said this resolves before that happens. So therefore it's destroyed mark for destruction, you know, all that sort of stuff that, that became the ruling. It was the main ruling of the timing chart. I think is like as much as all of it makes a very clear path, it was the whole marked for destruction keyword. Mm -hmm. That was the actual cornerstone of that whole document. I feel like. That's still a concept I should probably brush up on because I don't know that I necessarily understand marked for destruction as a concept. Very, very, yeah. very much I do do. I do as well. The funny thing is with that whole thing that happened is essentially there was a judge who had to make an on-the-fly decision because someone was trying to lawyer the rules. And as we do have in the Keyforge community, and he made a decision that became what it was. And I guess that was not in line with what FFG had intended. But because the ruling was made, they just rolled with it until this happened. I don't know if it was because of all the rules questions and these destruction puzzles that appeared online that caused them to be like, you know what, this is getting out of hand. We need to simplify this. Because as far as I was concerned, when I read that card, the common sense reading of it is the neighbors get destroyed, period, over, nothing else happens. Like that's how that's how I read it. Not that everything just keeps shuffling in and it keeps going. And I think that's how most people read it. And then there was the the lawyer side of it where you're not using common sense. You're you're brokering the rules to an advantage where you can see something crazy happen. And I mean that exists and some people love finding those things and all the power to them. I mean, all it means is that eventually we get a ruling and hopefully an update to the fact that explains everything in an update of the rules. A rules update dropped this very week, um, but uh, not a lot of time to talk about that here. I, I do want to commend FFG, though, for trying to get those updates out relatively regularly. Um, here's a thing to talk about, and one that I think we'll be talking about in years to come as we play the game. The lead-up to Worlds Collide, very exciting. Um how about the fact that Worlds Collide leaked at retail literally a month before it was supposed to come out? Isn't that wild? Yeah. It was, yeah. And honestly, probably one of the greatest blessings we've ever had. Yep. I agree with that as well. It just prepared all the the extracurricular events that we have within the Keyforge community online to be prepared for the release, which we've never had before. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're looking at Worlds Collide being available on TCO potentially the day of release. And if you remember AOA, it took like almost three months for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that AOA honestly suffered for that um, yeah, because yes, of did. the time frame of the way that the set came out, the length of time it took for TCO to become updated so that you could play AOA. Um, you know, it wasn't until, you know, late summer that TCO was able, because I remember I was in Edmonton when it happened and I messaged you guys like, oh my gosh, you know, I heard it's on. Is it good? Is it working? And you guys were like, yeah, that was like, what, three months ago? 
that's mm-hmm. that's been yeah. out for so long and uh, you know there was so, because so much of our discovery of what makes a set good comes from us playing reps on TCO trying out all of your decks finding weird interactions it really yep. stunted the growth of AOA i think in a way that yes. was not healthy for the set and ultimately i think has kind of led to our you know shared feeling across a lot of the community that AOA is just kind of a shrug and forget it set now which is a shame because i think history will show that it had some really interesting and cool ideas i agree yep so i wanted to sort of end off our discussion talking about just a Keyforge memory that you have, something special and cool that happened that you'll carry with you, you know, basically forever as part of the game. I'll start off by throwing to you, Rick. Do you have a special Keyforge memory that you'd like to share with everybody listening to the podcast? I do. I'm not exactly sure when it happened. I think it was either six or seven months into the the new game. We, uh, I was at one stop shop, which is now Rain City, and I believe one of the two of you were as well, but the other wasn't. And I ended up going three and zero and winning my first event ever. I wasn't there. That was the one I wasn't there. Okay. I remember that. I remember that you were so happy, and also was. one of those things where you played so well that day, like you were just firing on all cylinders. Your focus was really good. You understood the deck and what it needed to do to win, and you took down all comers. It was a good day of KeyForge. Blake, do you have a KeyForge memory to share with everybody? I do. So my KeyForge memory was actually walking into Connection Games for the very first time and you calling me over to come jam a game with you and being so welcoming and like friendly and making me feel very comfortable doing something new that I was excited to do. And I will honestly never forget that because it's actually shaped the way that I treat newcomers and it's all because of you, Alex. You're the you're my Keyforge memory, believe it or not. As corny as that sounds, that is what I remember the most clear. Like I can remember exactly like what it felt like walking into the store, going to the owner, asking him, and then you hearing me and then you just calling me over to come play with you. I can like visual everything, like where everyone was at the table. Like it's like burned in my memory because it had such a good like feeling. And when I left that night, I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, this is amazing. Like I can't believe this exists within a game that I want to play now. And it totally hooked me in was that experience, that first time playing in public with other people, Keyforge. And that was with you. So thank you. I quote you on this all the time, Blake. Um, it's such an amazing thing that in Keyforge, you forge keys, but you also forge friendships. Um, yep. This time last year, none of us knew each other. And now we host a podcast together. We talk to each other every day. We see each other a couple times a week. We play this game we love and we've become friends. And that is so incredibly special to me. Um, mm-hmm. I really appreciate that about the game and how it brought us all together. Um, and Agreed. more friends too besides you know yes. um, shout out to all the folks that we play with regularly and the folks who are listening to this right now the keyforge memory that i would like to share is um the first time that uh i got to play an organized tournament and i lost all of my games and i walked away from the store so amped because i had such a good time even though i didn't win anything literally four games out of four i lost and I still felt awesome and that I couldn't wait to play again. And to me, that felt so good. 
because I understood intellectually that most people, you know, get tilted when they lose and especially when they lose badly like I did that day. But at the same time, it, it was so fun and the community was so cool and so good that it was like, no, it doesn't matter if I win or lost. I had fun and I want to do more. And that's kind of what we've been talking about all day today. The fun yep. of Keyforge and the fun of the Keyforge community. It's so incredibly special. And I'm mm -hmm. looking forward to sharing it with you and all of our listeners and friends here at Help From Future Self as we go into the Worlds Collide and the true second era of Keyforge. Um, can't end the show without doing one of our classic bits. This one is Help From, Help future, from self. future Self. Blake, you have one that you wanted to share with us this week? Yes, I I know I've been kind of hogging the spotlight in the Help From Future Self arena, but this one is like they keep building on one another, and I'm going to be again talking about my good friend, the Wild Wormhole. <laughs> <laughs> so last week I regaled you with the tale of how I decided to do a Wild Wormhole to finish my turn because of the AOA scarring with Omegas and all that sort of stuff. And I ended up doing it into a library access. Well, this week I have an update on that where I was able to play library access and I was like, perfect. I play library access. Let's start off with a wild wormhole. Lo and behold, what do I wild wormhole into? A key abduction <laughs> on my final key. And by doing this first instead of last, I literally lost the game because I was one ember short and I had cards in hand would have generated that ember. So I've just decided that I am cursed with the wild wormhole and I should never play with my wild wormhole mat again because it's just going to trigger me every time I see that art. I don't know what to do. Last week I said, if I play it first, I lose. Or if I play it last, I lose. This week I play it first, I lose. Like, I just don't know how to play wild wormhole. So I'm going to kind of stay away from it for a while because right now the feels bad moments are so strong that I just don't know how to move on with my life. So if I see one, I think I'm just going to freeze up and have to like concede to my opponent. So I just need to stay away from him for a while. From wild wormhole to mild wormhole, the Coach Boulevard paper fight story. Guys, <sighs> two days until we get to play Worlds Collide, buy as much World Collides as we want and, you know, jam as many games as possible. Blake, I wish you all the luck in Seattle at the primes that are going on. Rick, I'm going to see you this weekend and we're going to jam some games with some brand new decks. So yes, exciting. My name is Scuzzy Gruen. You can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, and on The Crucible under that name. Where can they find you, Rick? On The Crucible at Rickster78 and The Wheeling Key Forger on Twitter. What about yourself, Blake? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at BLVD Paper Fight. That's Boulevard Paper Fight. And also I have YouTube as well, which I'm getting back into the swing of and going to be have some exciting things coming up. So uh, come chat with me on Twitter, though. That's the best spot. All right, we got to get out of here. We have so many keys to forge and so many decks to look at. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back at you with some Worlds Collide chatter next week. Until then, stay forging. <laughs>